Bitcoin, crypto bubbles, passive indexation. There's a lot of financial jargon out there. Old Mutual can help you make sense of it all and give you great advice to make the right decisions. If you've got a question or want to know how to get the most out of your money, call them on 0860 60 60 60 or speak to an old mutual financial advisor or your broker. Today's the day. Get great financial advice so you can do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial service provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice and do great things. Welcome back. Uh, you are on The Money Show with Rufilo Moloto. I'm looking forward to an excellent week ahead with you. You might recognize my voice from our Business in Africa Crossing with John Matham on The Drive Show, 4 p.m. on Wednesdays. Or you may not recognize my voice at all. Not a worry. We have plenty of time to get to know each other this week as we unpack the big money stories of each day. First up, of course, Finance Minister Ntlantlanene has announced a preliminary net SARS revenue collection shortfall for the 2017-18 financial year at 1.216 trillion rand, just shy of the previously announced budget estimate of 1.217 trillion rand. We talked to Mark King and SARS Acting Commissioner about what this means for future revenue targets, our collections in general, and our debt issuance outlook. Uh, we'll also be talking about uh, Mark Lamberti, new Eskom board member. Uh, Mark Lamberti has apologized unreservedly after being charged for referring to a highly qualified and senior black employee as a, quote, female empowerment equity candidate. Journalist Karen Morn will unpack the developments of that story for us just after the bottom of the hour. And in the second hour, we'll also be uh, chatting to the ladies of Teabag Designs, original Teabag Designs, whose bespoke handmade um, uh, rooibos teabags are taking Parisian, Parisian retail by storm. And Joni Peddle, chief behavior igniter at fab quotient discusses the science of personality versus iq and eq fast fact of course or just because uh, bruce is out today it doesn't mean things are any different our fast fact question today is which company listed today as the new york stock exchange's first ever direct floor listing we want to know your answers send us an sms on 31702 or 31567 the money show on your number one news and talk station Mark Kingen, Acting South- Commissioner of South African Reserve, uh, our South African Revenue Service, joins us on the line to discuss the announced shortfall in provisional revenue collection for 2017-18. Um, and at 1.216 trillion rand, collections fall just short, just a hair short, at 0.06% um, of what was the expected revenue. Um, Mark Kingen, uh, of course, uh, is on the line with us. Um, are you through there, Mark? Yes, I am, Rufiwe, and good to be with you and, and your listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. So the minister's official statement was certainly upbeat um, with uh, the psychological trillion rand mark being crossed for the third year in a row. Um, However, of course, this doesn't really move the needle on the 48 billion rand revenue gap we were already expecting at the budget time. Um, With as impartial a perspective as possible, what should we be focused on here? Our ability to make this number or should we be concerned about this still wide gap? No, I think we need to to be focused on what are the opportunities that we can start looking at going forward as we aim to the 1.345 trillion uh, looking at 2019 financial year. So that is really, I think we need to look at the opportunities. We need to go and have a look at what we could do better. Mm. Uh, We need to encourage compliance and, and tax morality in the broader sense of the word. 
correct. And in fairness, a key driver of the mist does seem to have been impacted largely by operational base effects um, rather than necessarily um, an inability to, to increase revenue. You raise an, an interesting point with respect to um, uh, compliance uh, and, and, collect, and the ability to collect a little bit better. Please tell us a bit about that. Well, obviously, the whole issue of compliance is premised on, on, on a number of, of things. Obviously, service uh, and education of taxpayers, but then obviously our enforcement uh, abilities. So we have seen for, since about 2008 a continuing decline in compliance of the submission of returns, specifically for pays you earn and that. And that is obviously a concern because these are taxes that people are withholding on behalf of others and should be paying over to us. So those are things that we do need to focus on more proactively and find a way to claw back. But I think that the key issue for us is, is to, to engage with the public, find a better way of serving our public, that people see credibility in our organization and an organization that's delivering on the government mandate. And that's what we've committed to. Indeed, Mark. I think um, your last point there—you know, tax morality has been the mark, the, the big buzzword of the, of the year. It seems as though, in addition to some improved confidence um, and, and hopefully better collection, as you say, specifically uh, on, on the on the CIT side, the corporate income tax side, it seems as though um, what we're seeing in con- consumer and business confidence might bounce back. And, and that's not just in the economy, but as you say, uh, since December, there seems to be a marked sense of not just rumophoria, but a sense of a sense of, 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 uh, of mm. co- collective of effort as a country and pulling together, which which definitely does underpin tax morality, doesn't it? That's correct. I mean, we have been concerned. If we have a look at the increase in the domestic VAT for the for the for the past uh, year, we've only seen a 4.5 percent growth. Where you know overall growth has been at 6.3 percent. We look forward to next year. We're looking at uh, excess of a 10 percent growth. So we obviously need to swing the ship more and and get these specific areas going. Import VAT is obviously driven by people purchasing goods that they're importing. That has a lot to do with confidence in the economy, investment by business into the economy. And we are trusting that as we go forward, we're going to see more of that. Indeed. Um, specifically on the point of VAT, uh, over the Easter weekend, the excitement of a marginal interest rate cut was quickly tempered by uh, the beginning of the implementation, obviously, of, of the new increase uh, in the VAT rate. Um, in your Correct. communication with, with uh, taxpayers and the like, have you sort of ha- had gotten a feel for how people are feeling about this? It's an in- one percentage point, but it's seven percentage uh, percent. percent. Well, uh, yes, and I, I've, I've read up the articles in terms of that. I think in terms of the VAT rate increase, um, we've been very gratified by businesses coming to the, the party in terms of ensuring it's implemented. Obviously, the broader policy issue and aspects relating to that, um, the minister didn't make his announcements uh, on, on at the end of last week with regards to the committee that will be evaluating the zero-rated items. I think you're aware of that. There's a committee that's been established that will go forward to review that bundle of goods. And obviously, we'll t- take deep uh, notice of that. Uh, it can impact us, obviously. Uh, but by all accounts, all's gone well. We understand nobody likes paying more tax. We understand that. But the country has got certain needs that need to be met. Uh, There's there's various commitments being made that need to be fulfilled. And um, you can't keep on borrowing more and more to to fulfill that. You need to to up the revenue take. Uh, We want to do our bit. It can't only come from an increase in that. It needs to come from an increase in compliance, increased enforcement of people the so-called tax gap that we start addressing that far more proactively to reduce the deficit before borrowing.
Brilliant. Um, that was going to be my next question, uh, specifically having just staved off the ratings downgrade from Moody's on Friday. Um, our borrowing requirement, as we say, the gap has not really changed. But in terms of outlook and your optimism on our borrowing requirement uh, going forward, do you have any comment on that? Well, no, I don't specifically. Obviously, that's within the domain outside source. You know, I'm here to put the money on the table to Indeed. collect the money. Uh, and, and ensure that the, we do our best for, for the country in terms of that. And that's what we're committed to do. Excellent. A few uh, once-off benefits might uh, see us through as well. Again, uh, the refunds, well, the, the base of the refunds should be the same next year. Um, we, you, the, the minister did mention the longer trading March in, month in March last year might have affected us. Um, and then, um, you know, over and above that, uh, it, it looks as though, as I said, the upswing in, in, in confidence in the country, um, improved manufacturing and, 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 and commodities prices mm. are, are supposed to help us go forward. Correct. I mean, if we have a look, and as I said, the increase this year is 6.3%. If we look at our, our provisional tax payments for, for companies, that is up by 6.7%, which is higher than the norm. And and uh, if we, 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 we take that into account, I think there, there are positive things that are in uh, afoot that we will be reaping the benefit as we go forward. Sounds excellent. Uh, all of that, in addition to the voluntary declaration, I'm sure is going to support us very well. Yes, Mark, we've been very gratified with that. Ten billion so far, so still going on, and we, we, we've got an excellent team working there tirelessly to get that done. You certainly do, and we echo the Minister's comments in thanking all 13,500 of you. Thank you so much, Mark, for taking the time to speak to us today. Good chatting. Thank all you right. very much. Cheers. 702 and Cape Talk, The Money Show. Our fast fact answer is up. Of course, the question was which company listed today as the New York Stock Exchange's first ever direct floor listing? Uh, very few people giving us any answers, but the answer is Spotify, the Swedish music streaming service that recently introduced itself to the South African consumer market. Um, although you might have already found ways to stream it up until now. <laughs> Spotify, of course, did not hire investment banks as underwriters or undertake an investor roadshow, as would normally be expected of a typical traditional listing. Uh, they could avoid the this, uh, given that they're cash flush, they don't actually require fresh capital. And being a popular consumer brand, which is relatively well understood, even by their investors, uh, the need for price discovery, they managed to actually avert. So it was a very clever way to avoid investment banking fees. I'm sure all the investment bankers out there will be watching whether or not this um, uh, trend will pick up. Um, and uh, the often uh, pump and flip that happens, uh, that befalls many tech companies after listing, listing can be uh, avoided. Um, to be fair, sorry, Peter and Greenside actually correctly guessed the fast fact. Well done, Peter. My apologies. Spotify was indeed the answer. The Money Show. The Markets. Spotify, of course, isn't the only confident and ambitious tech company to list out there. South Africa's Sagamartha Technologies, a media and online platform company, plans to be the first e-commerce IPO on the JSE. They're eyeing a $4 billion valuation and plan to raise 7.5 billion rand in a share placement this Friday. This was recently announced just today. Also eyeing a few international, um, a few international uh, venture capital anchors for a portion if this is successful. Iqbal Survey, Segunjalo Investment of 73% could be reduced to 60% and would not only do that but also diversify e-commerce options on the South African bourse from just NASPERS and perhaps help the company roll out uh, growth on the African continent. So we might have a new ticker by the end of this week successfully listed. For more on the activity in the JSC and beyond, however, we have Wayne McCurry, today's market commentator from Ashburton Investments. Wayne, how are you? Good news, all thanks. Excellent, excellent. Wayne, you wanted to chat to us. The purchasing managers in, uh, index was released today. 
Yes, it came out quite poorly, actually, surprisingly. Now, it came out for about 47 points. Remember, below 50, you are, in theory, in a contraction phase. And the last reading we had was almost 51. Mm. So it seems a little bit odd that in the age of Ramaphoria, that the purchasing management index would actually fall. But I've also learned after many years now that this is quite a volatile number. It's only one month's reading. There's quite often a couple of statistical or data abnormalities in it. But it is certainly unusual to get such a negative uh, a reading when things are looking up in South Africa and looking a lot better. So we'll have to see what happens next month. But certainly it wasn't good news. Wayne, is there any possibility that the Ramaphoria wears off quite quickly for a manufacturer as the RAND strengthens? Yeah, look, it will to a certain extent. But understand, luckily enough, commodity prices are still holding. So the, the big export sectors, which is mainly commodities in South Africa, even with the strong RAND, are actually doing all right. But Ramaphoria is a domestic issue. And, and domestic, the domestic part of our economy... Sure, it's probably 80 or 85 percent is purely domestic. Only 10 or 15 percent or 20 percent is export. So, Ramaphoria is the most important one, and that will still be around for a while. It doesn't. It's not. It's not a two-month wonder. It will actually be around for a while still. I think. Indeed, it's possibly the the biggest uh, psychological shift we've had since 1994. Um, yes. Going a little further afield on those commodities prices, uh, some significant news from Anglo-American today? Yeah, look, they, they've got this uh, Minos Rio iron ore plant in South America that I'm sure they curse putting $1 into that over time, but it doesn't matter the money spent. They got a, they transport the iron ore in a slurry, you know, which in a liquid form to the port to export it. Mm-hmm. And this pipeline that they used sprung a leak a while back and didn't cause any major damage or any environmental issues. But now they're shutting down the whole pipeline for the next three months while they go and look for any more leaks or any faults in the actual pipeline. Now, this is one of, it's one of the biggest iron ore mines in the world, and it's certainly one of Anglo-Americans' biggest assets. But I don't think it will affect earnings all that much because they have got stockpiles that they can still sell, and then when the, when the pipeline comes back on stream, they can replenish those stockpiles. So I don't think it's a catastrophe for the share price, but certainly their mining production will be down quite a bit, I would think. Indeed. So this is more of an accidental shift, not really a shift in confidence in either the ore or a view on the country. No, 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 not at all. This, this is a purely, let's call it a technical stroke environmental matter. I hear you. And it looks as though it will possibly be solved quite soon. I just wanted to be sure it wasn't a Trumpism that uh, might have affected, you know, some sort of a tariff uh, situation that might have affected uh, that decision from them. But uh, look, we are all blessed by politicians. Indeed. We are indeed. And, um, and of course, he is in the news for, more, for numerous reasons, as we know, uh, although he's becoming a far bigger mover of markets of late um, yes. than movers of, a mover of Twitter feeds and Congress decisions. Um, what are some of your views on the, on, on, in, in the oil space, the steel tariffs that well, have look, come through? I suppose we've got to take a step back. The reason why the markets in America and elsewhere are specifically reacting negative to what uh, President Trump is doing is because they are inexpensive territory. So in other words, if the markets were cheap and Trump carried on doing what he's doing now, there wouldn't be that big an effect on markets. But certainly the U.S. market 
is clearly in expensive territory. And within the market, the tech shares are the most expensive sector. So they are an expensive sector within an expensive market. Then when President Trump makes comments about, you know, uh, the effect that the Internet companies are having on the U.S. Postal Service, Google, Amazon, etc., those shares take a beating. And then when he makes noises and does actual things on trade tariffs and starting a trade war and China retaliates, that has a marked effect on, on the share market. And that's the main reason why we're seeing the markets falling, is that the Trump effect has caused a bit of a trigger in an overall expensive market. And that's why we've seen quite a bit of weakness carrying on this year. Personally, and I hope I'm right, I'm not too worried about it, because I think it's still a little bit early in the cycle, but I clearly acknowledge that we are in the late stages of the cycle, and that's characterized by rising interest rates and weak stock markets. It just depends how far we are down that cycle. I don't think we're near the end yet, but we're certainly getting there. Indeed. There is something to, to be said, though, for volatility in commentary. Um, you know, we, we usually would call this political risk, but it's now become Twitter risk. In fact, I, I think I saw some okay. some concerns that, um, you know, so, certainly with respect to the Amazon comments, um, it, it, the SEC may find it actually to be a bit of a breach of law to make public comments of that nature, um, as if a policy change might be coming along that may materially affect a person's yeah. stock portfolio. Yeah, very much so. But we look, understand. Governments worldwide are worried about any agency or any unit that they can't control that has the ability to influence world decisions. So as the social media networks get bigger and bigger, they in themselves can influence the outcome of elections. I mean, we've seen this with Donald Trump and and all of this. And governments don't like agencies that are becoming almost as powerful as what they are. So... I think this is the start of a a legislatory move worldwide to try and regulate Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera, et cetera, because they are just simply becoming too powerful. And as I said earlier on, they can influence world events simply by what they trend or what they emphasize or what they promote. Absolutely. Governments don't like us. Well, that does make sense. I mean, I suppose our largest on the JSE, our largest exposure to that potential risk would be NASPAS. Do you think we'll see the yes. same effect? Or does the fact that Tencent is an already operating in a highly regulated market yes. uh, stave off that's a little the, bit of the impact? That's the big difference. They're operating in China. They are already heavily regulated. The other ones aren't allowed into China mm, because, exactly. they aren't regu- because they can't be regulated by the Chinese government. So. You know, China is still a communist political system, eh? so there's heavy regulation there. You can't just do what you want in China. Indeed, except you can make a lot of moolah if you just you listen to what money. they say. Um, any other parts of the of the of the tech sector that are, or the TMT sector that concern you in this regard? Um, you know, um, if we're speaking about uh, communication and social media apps, um, the likes of Facebook have been able to make great, uh, really extend the size of their markets by offering yes. free for Facebook on most mobile operators around the world, including South Africa. Similarly, the likes of WhatsApp might begin to be regulated, certainly as a subsidiary of theirs. Um, any thoughts on how that might impact? our telco operators here? Look, not too much here in South Africa per se. I mean, obviously we've spoken about NASPAS and that's China, but the, the, the other, let's even call it fixed line and mobile, let's call it voice, has been declining steadily for donkey's years now as the WhatsApp takes over. I don't think it's going to be a lightning shift 
But clearly, voice minutes are going down as quickly as what data minutes are going up. So your margins will come under pressure. But I think the market understands that. And by and large, I think that's probably in the Vodacom and the Telcom and the MTN share prices. Voice is clearly on the decline. And data volumes are up, but prices are down. So once again, as I said, it's a, it's a margin issue with all of these companies. Indeed, it certainly is. Um, Wayne, I've really appreciated your perspective on what's going on in the markets here and abroad. Uh, we do hope that we'll return to fundamentals as quickly as possible yes. and move a little bit further away from the rhetoric that we're seeing, um, certainly with respect to uh, the, the staving off or the attempted staving off of, uh, of, of Congress shutdowns, uh, which, which always sort of shake the markets to a certain extent. Um, but we appreciate your perspective. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's Wayne Curry from Ashburton Investments uh, with uh, some very sage views on the world. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. So we spoke about it earlier in the hour that we were going to be speaking to Karen Morn, a journalist and author, um, about her article today with respect to uh, Imperial CEO, uh, where the North Gauteng High Court had actually found uh, against him with respect to uh, the highly qualified senior black female professional um, at AMH, uh, one of the Imperial's uh, uh, subsidiaries. Uh, but we've actually just received a statement just now that Imperial has noted the High Court judgment and is pleased that there are no findings of race or gender discrimination against AMH, Imperial and Mark Lamberti. So we look forward very much uh, just after the sport to speaking to Karen Morn. She'll give us her perspective on that, the details uh, that have come along uh, today and, and, and uh, thus far in the case, um, and whether or not we're going to see any further, uh, any further discussion about this, about Ms. Adila Chawan. Is there any more that she seeks from the court? It seems as though the company and she have parted ways. Uh, it seems as though the court has found um, in her favour in terms of being slightly impaired, but not that the companies themselves um, or, or the CEO has been found um, in, in any kind of breach of gender or race discrimination. How do those fit together? And we look forward very much to hearing from Karen uh, what she'd like to tell us uh, in her perspective. The Money Show on your number one news and talk station. And you're back here with Rufilo Muloto. Uh, if you're just joining us, we've just had the news uh, and the traffic. I am going to be sitting in this week for Bruce, uh, we've already forgotten his name. <laughs> I'm teasing. Bruce Whitfield, um, who is away this week. Um, you might uh, know me from some time uh, back, but uh, from, from the times that I sit on the show with uh, John Matham um, on our Wednesday crossing on business in Africa. And one of the things I'm quite excited about in terms of business in Africa is this, uh, is this listing. Um, and I'd love to hear your opinions if you wanted to call and let us know of uh, Iqbal Surgi's um, Iqbal Surveys uh, tech company um, kind of coming in as a mirroring of the Spotify listing um, that came out of uh, from from the Swiss company Spotify out of uh, New York uh, New York Stock Exchange where they went for a direct listing equally this company coming through extremely quickly not a lot of notice to the market a number of VC investors already involved basically disintermediating investment banks is this a trend we're going to start seeing in tech are we going to start seeing uh, that tech companies, particularly those that aren't cash flush, uh, are going to not necessarily need to do price discovery, uh, company discovery, particularly when they're well known as private uh, market uh, structures, uh, and go straight to market uh, without actually having to go to our banking intermediaries. 702 and Cape Talk, The Money Show.
Specialist legal journalist at Tiso Black Star Karen Morn will be joining us now to discuss the developments of a High Court finding that Imperial CEO and newly appointed Eskom board member Mark Lamberti did wrongfully impair the dignity of a highly qualified senior black female professional at one of Imperial's subsidiaries um, and with what the court has found, had found to be racist and sexist comments. Uh, Mr. Mark Lamberti, however, has since apologized unreservedly for the incident, uh, expressing his deeply deep regrets and me- saying that he did not mean to to insult or demean um the, uh, the, the lady whose name uh, is um, Adila Chawan and also we've just received a statement at the moment from Imperial noting that the High Court noting the High Court judgment and mentioning that they are pleased um, that there were no findings of race or gender discrimination against AMH, Imperial or Mark Lamberti. Uh, Karen we'd love to hear your view. Hi, how are you today? <laughs> I'm great. I think it's very understandable that in the wake of this ruling there will be an attempt to somehow lessen um, the full extent of what the court has found. But the court did find that Ajila Chawan's uh, inference that she had been the target of racism or gender discrimination was justified in the circumstances of this case. It's quite a complicated matter. It involves uh, delic law and damages. And I think there's a huge amount of kind of legal detail in this matter. But the key case to remember here is that this isn't just a matter of, of this woman who is a tra- highly trained chartered accountant with a very uh, rich and uh, history of experience um, and qualification simply making a case over a comment that was made by Mark Lamberti. She's essentially saying that because she complained about that comment of him calling her a, quote, female employment equity in front of a group of managers, She's saying that because she complained about that and, of course, another apparently racist comment that was made by the CFO of the company that she had been given a brown car because oh, she Rainsburg. had brown skin, um, that, that she was essentially forced out of her position um, and that Lamberti was, it was very involved in the disciplinary process that took her out of her job. So I think that, you know, the kind of narrative that there's no finding of gender or race discrimination is is somewhat a subversion of what this judgment has actually found. All right, then just for a bit of clarity, because for me, I'm struggling between the two statements. Just start us off at the mm. beginning, please, Karen. Um, so my understanding is, of course, she's not just any spe- senior special, uh, senior uh, CA. She's also actually pre- acted as a, she, sorry, she's actually been positioned as a CFO in the past. Uh, she's also practiced as an, as an acting CEO in the past. So um, help us understand why those, the, the comment that was made about her, uh, if, the, if the position has been given before, would be, would be received in, 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 so heavily. The thing was that she um, she took massive umbrage to the fact that she was essentially being told, according to her subjective interpretation of what happened, that she would not have been in the position, or she was she, because for any other reason that she was an employment equity candidate. And the court, uh, Judge Pitt Mayer, in fact noted that at the time when all of this was going on. They were literally, it was literally the management of Imperial was almost entirely white and male. Now, remember that Adila Chawan had actually been promised the position of CFO by Mark Lambetti. That doesn't seem to have been disputed in the papers. Um, but instead of her getting that position, she was in fact, uh, you know, it, she was in fact 
sidelined, according to her, so that a, a white Afrikaans male who actually didn't have any experience within the framework of the group or the accounting practices that she had been familiar with for years was appointed. And in the judgment, the judge actually makes reference to the fact that she often had to assist him um, with matters involving uh, accounting practices at the company. So, you know, this, this, it was very unfortunate that, you know, Mark Lamberti chose to use those words about her um, in that context in front of other managers. And what has been so interesting for me in the Twitter space is the number of black professionals coming out saying, as black women, particularly, we often have this experience of being described in this way as though our own innate abilities are not being recognized and that we're simply there to fit a particular dem demographic profile. And that is why this case is so important. Because I spoke to Adila Chawan. She said she was offered a, a monetary settlement to drop this case. And she said to me, I didn't do it because I had to act for so many other people, so many other women in the same situation, it was important that I didn't back down on this issue because this judgment is sending quite a strong message about what is and is not appropriate language within the workplace and particularly on this issue of referring to people as employment equity candidates. And female at that. Um, exactly. Uh, now tell me, Karen, are there any consequences that were found in the High Court uh, for Mr. Lamberti? And was Mr. Van Reisberg even mentioned in the uh, in, in his commentary? Was it mentioned in the in the in the findings? Yes, he was mentioned. The court found that uh, Mr. Van Reisberg denied making the comment where he said that you know he had a white car because he had white skin and a dealer had a brown car because it matched his skin. He denied that completely, and the court actually found that his, um, his denials were very implausible. Um, they said that she was an excellent and credible witness who, who gave um, reliable evidence about what happened. And it's crucial to remember that Mr. Lamberti, in fact, chose not to testify um, in this case, and the court made an adverse inference against him because of that. What is important here is that she has proved that she has grounds to seek damages from AMH um, Lamberti in terms of the way in which she was uh, the, the whole process around the dismissal and the comments. Um, she can now do that and seek um, a monetary settlement from them. Certainly the statement that they're releasing doesn't indicate that they intend to appeal this judgment. And I think that they will probably try and settle it with her. But I think the bigger question is what does ESCOM do in the wake of this ruling? It is serious and an attempt to try and dilute what exactly the court has found and the support it has uh, given to Adela Chawan's interpretation of what has happened to her under removal should not be undermined um, as simply being about an offhand comment that went wrong. It, it goes far, far deeper than that. Indeed, and that was going to be my next question. He will have a major role to play on Eskim's newly appointed board. Um, as we currently know him, he's a well-respected business operator with a long track record in the country and on the continent, which is partly, well, largely why he was appointed to the board. Has Eskim made any comment on the matter? All they said to us at this point is that they are studying the judgment. We know that they have the judgment. They are looking at it. Um, I think there's going to be, you know, certainly when he, Mr. Lamberti appeared before Parliament, he did indicate that he would resign from the ESCOM board, as I understand it, if there was, you know, serious finding um, made against him, which is, I think, what, which, which what is what underpins this the statement by um, Imperial that, you know, there was no finding of race or gender discrimination against him or the company. Um, I don't think that is legally correct. 
having spoken to the lawyers for um, Ms. Chow- Mrs. Chowan, they certainly don't regard it in that light. And I think, you know, ESCOM's own legal experts are going to have to go through this, this judgment and really make a determination about whether or not they believe that an apology is enough in this circumstance. I think if Mr. Lamberti was going to respond, I think that the apology that he has given, that he was, you know, deeply regretted upsetting Ms. Chowan is unfortunate because it's not simply about upsetting one person. It's about an apparent strategy that was undertaken in that company to keep a, a person that should have been put in a position out of it. And, I mean, that's where the explanation needs to come in. And I think it's very important that... Imperial and AMH play open cards um, with South Africa about what exactly happened here because on the outside, it doesn't look very good. And the court has made certain adverse inferences in that regard about what Indeed. happened. And at a national level, that definitely certainly raises concerns. We've had recent findings of criminal injury around the country uh, where damages have been found. The court did say they, her dignity was impaired and agreed that mm-hmm. she suffered damages. Uh, just in your view, um, from a legal expert's perspective, uh, d- does the criminal injury play in in this case? And specifically, what does that mean if that starts spreading to a corporate level from just an individual legal level, as we've seen with Mickey, Vicky Momberg and, and Penny Sparrows of the world? Well, it's a very good question. I mean, essentially, this was this was not a criminal injury case. It was it was a case under you know the contractual um, agreement that existed between her. KMH, Mr. Lamberti, and what she perceived to be and what was found by a court to be um, an infringement on her dignity. And you are so right. That is what crimen and urea is. It's the utterance of a um, oftentimes racially offensive uh, term or word to demean and undermine the dignity mm. of another person. Um, and that is really what happened to Adila uh, Chawan here. This, you know, she, she, as I said before, has been found to be a very credible witness. And when you talk to her about what happened, she bought, she, all she wanted in the beginning was simply an apology. Um, and that was why she lodged her grievance um, against Mr. Lamberti and against um, Mr. Jansen Frontier in, in regards to the utterance about her, her skin color. Um, and instead, you know, she was, she was basically subjected to what her counsel have described as a trumped up case. Um, pushed out of the company in circumstances that were immensely damaging for her. Mm. And so, you know, it wasn't just about the utterances. It was about the way that she was treated. And I think that, you know, that needs to be fully acknowledged and apologized for as well. Absolutely. Excellent analysis from you, Karen Moore. Thank you so much for speaking to our specialist legal journalist at Tito Blackstar. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Gracious Dubé, a 33-year-old lady from Hout Bay in Cape Town, has always had an eye for fashion, but never did she think her handmade purses from rooibos tea bags would one day be sold as a hot fashion accessory in Paris, the fashion capital of the world, until we bring it back to Africa. But she, growing up in Harare, had a, has a, has a, had a career as an artist and wasn't encouraged by her parents. But when she moved to South Africa, she got involved with a company called Original Tea Bag Designs in 2006. Now, Original Tea Bag Designs is a company that started out as a social responsibility project by founder and former student, uh, excuse me, art teacher uh, Jill Hayes to help impoverished women from Imzamoyetu, an informal city in Sahad Bay uh, to earn money by making unique arts and crafts, again, from tea bags and tea boxes. Grace, tell us about how your now traveling, world traveling, innovative and sustainable designs are doing. 
Hello, how are you? We're well this evening. Uh, well, it's my bags. What can I say? It's my bags. Uh, they gave me that opportunity from original tea bag designs, like what you said. So that's where I'm working. And then uh, I started with one bag. It was a shoulder bag. And then um, the lady who started the whole thing, Jill Hayes, she helped me to improve the bag. And then from there, still it was not selling that much. And then there was some um, tour guides who came in our shop because we do get tourists from all over. So there were tour guides who came, they were doing a tour. So one of the tour guides, she was interested in my bag, but she didn't want that big size. So she asked me if I can make um, three of them, but she wanted them uh, small ones, makeup bags. So I did make those three makeup bags, but I didn't make exactly three. I made, I made, I think it was seven of them. And then when I brought them, she just took all of them. And then uh, Jill encouraged me to say, you know what, these bags, I think they, they will sell. Why don't you make maybe 10? We'll put them in the shop and see if they're going to sell. I did make those 10, and they did sell. And then from then, I started to, to make now more bags, and they were selling. And then this Paris designer, she was doing her shopping in Waterfront. So she saw one of the makeup bags, and then she loved the uh, makeup bag. And then that's, that's when the whole thing came for me, making the, the one that, that she's buying from me because we had to meet, and then we created the design that she wanted. So now you're a bespoke designer for a boutique located in Paris called Itemba Design Technique. Yes. Excellent. And um, how long does it take you to make an order for them? <laughs> that must be a huge order. Or, do you, or does she take small bits at a time? Uh, it, it, no, she gives me times. Like if she wants uh, to order, she'll give me maybe if she wants 50 or 100. It depends. So when she gives, maybe she can give me a month to make them. Excellent. Now, tell me, uh, so, so, Gracious, this sounds like a, re- a really great story, and, and I'm glad that it's meant a great deal for you. I understand it's, it's allowed you to build a business in Hart Bay and, uh, and, and really look after your 11-year-old son. Won't you hand the phone to Jill? We'd love to hear a little bit more about the actual um, original tea bags brand uh, oh, that, okay. that you fell under. Thank you so much. Okay, just hold on. Hello, good evening. Evening, Jill. Why tea? And why specifically rooibos tea? Well, it doesn't have to be rooibos, actually. It can be any tea. And, uh, I mean, we literally get tea bags that are sent to us from all over the world, um, which we use. Um, we're not fussy. The, brown, the, the rooibos ones do have a very nice, um, rich colour to them. But really, any tea bags, uh, round ones, square ones, ones with strings, yeah. It's quite bizarre, isn't it? We've become um, connoisseurs of, of recycled tea bags. And I understand that the SA Rooibos Council love your work. Yes, I mean, look, this whole thing started with them posting a picture of Gracious's bag. Um, and, yeah, Gracious, Gracious uh, has, has been quite a little celebrity over the last couple of weeks. And uh, we're delighted that, um, you know, the whole purpose of Original Tea Bike Designs, um, ever since I started it many years ago, has been to empower and this is a, um, I hope, or well, I like to feel, this is an example of empowering. Um, you know, Gracious has a, a full-time job. She's earning a, a good salary. But on the, on the side of that, she's able to start her own business. Oh, great. Which we're thrilled with. Excellent. And I understand this has been going from, since 2000, even though Gracious joined in 06. How many ladies from Imzamoyoto are part of your project? And who are the next uh, up-and-coming designers for us oh, to look out you'll for? Have, you'll have to wait and see. Um, look, we do have a few gentlemen, and I have to say that oh, they, they're very important. In fact, our main production uh, manager, he's a gentleman. 
Um, we've got 16 staff. Uh, most of them are from Imazama Yeti. Um, yeah, look, I, as I said before, we, we, we are a tourist destination. We make a whole range of products out of tea bags. That, that was the main, well, the main drive when I started it all those years ago was to create jobs. Um, but I'm seeing that it's so, so gracious and the other members of staff who are making their own products, for me, that is very exciting. Because this is giving business skills alongside um, them earning extra money. Well, that's brilliant, Jill. We're very excited for original tea bags. Hoping that SA Rebus Council partners with you to take this further across the country. Thank you so much for speaking well, to us this you. evening. Thank you for letting us share our story. The Money Show on your number one news and talk station. You're back on The Money Show for the second hour. My name is Rifilo Moloto, in for Bruce Whitfield this week. And, of course, The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today is the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. If you missed our fast fact in the first hour, of course, the question was, uh, which company listed today as the New York Stock Exchange's first ever direct floor listing? We got a couple of correct answers for Spotify. And as an update, the, now the boss in New York is open. It has started trading. Um, and and of course, the reason that this is very interesting and we've been watching this so closely is that the direct listing for the first time did not go through what you would normally find with a traditional listing, which is meeting all of the investors, having investment banks tell you why your company is important, why it should be valued at a particular level. Spotify was very comfortable with the fact that with enough cash on their books, they're not really seeking capital and people know who they are. We're all over their phones listening to their music anyway. If you don't, they've just entered South Africa last month uh, with black coffee all over the posters and Santons, so you can actually start downloading via Spotify. And, of course, the big risk in the market, so the big question was, can a tech company or can any company list without giving a heads up about who you are? Um, and for at least these last couple of minutes, Spotify is proving it. They had actually set a reference price of 132 bottle dollars, excuse me, $132 before the debut, and it's going great deal, a great deal better than expected. It opened uh, today at $165.90 per, per share. Uh, market traders and, and commentators are talking about it being the next sort of uh, big, big tech story. Um, but of course, it's always the first day that seems like a, a big punt. Um, this was exactly what we want to avoid in the tech stories is the big pump and uh, pump and flip. Uh, so let's, let's see what we'll keep an eye on this over the next couple of weeks. And certainly while I'm here with you for the rest of the week, while Bruce is out. Um, as you are used to, we'll be chatting to Andy Rice, um, our Heroes and Zeros branding and advertising expert, telling us who the heroes and zeros are of this week. 702 and Cape Talk, The Money Show. And Andy is uh, on the line with us, Andy Rice, branding and advertising expert. Uh, thank you so much for calling in. Let us know who the heroes and zeros are for today. Hello, Rafael. Yes, I certainly will. Um, I've got a bit of a theme this week in the oh. sense that there's a link between the hero and the zero. And um, it's all about one of the oldest and yet least known about um, uh, Western non-religious festivals. That sounds very complicated. <laughs> Basically, what I'm talking about is April Fool's Day. Ah. It's been going since at least like the 17th century. And nobody really knows where it came from, but it's, it's, it's as strong as ever. And every year... Brands and their advertising agencies and newspapers try to outdo each other with um, the most outrageous, uh, dreamt-up things which uh, are valid just for the one day. And it's always fun to see how the, the advertising community and, and the brands they represent 
uh, get stuck in. And uh, you can find, I, I could talk for half an hour on all the different ones that, that, that have happened this year, but Indeed. I've picked out a couple that might be amusing. A lot of the, a lot of the famous brands choose to launch, in inverted commas, um, new versions of their brand um, just for the day. And, of course, the key to a good April Fool is that it must be almost believable. If it's wildly outrageous, then, of course, the game's up straight away. Absolutely. But if it seems like it could be something that, that they might do, then uh, uh, people do get fooled genuinely. Now, um, a lot of um, food stuff seem to launch their variants. So Burger King... Um, have a chocolate whopper, they said. This oh, my gosh. Great new thing. And I'm not sure that the chocolate and, and, and uh, uh, beef burgers go together terribly well. But if you do like it, you could wash it down. <laughs> Avocado-flavoured Coke. Oh, my. Said they were going to be launching. And you can, uh, you can spice it up with some Heinz chocolate mayonnaise. All of these are, are brands that they claim to be launching. Um, there's some other really nice ones. For example... Um, Virgin Airways and Virgin Gyms got together to launch an in-flight bike spinning class for longer-haul <laughs> routes. You can spend your time in the saddle spinning away. Getting... You've got to keep the circulation going. Well, absolutely. Avoid the, <laughs> what is it, the deep vein thrombosis you can get on long, long-term long flights. So there's lots of really good ones. Soda Stream, the, the people who make um, fizzy water dispensers, um, they they supposedly launched a soda soak version, which is a kind of high volume version for you to to relax in the bath. Uh, oh my in, gosh! Did water? No, that one I don't believe. Although to be fair, the vir- the Virgin example is not bad. There's not much you can put past uh, Richard Branson. Well, um, exactly. I wouldn't right in terms of your criteria for a good joke. And I, and actually Burger King, you know, with the millennial flavors of avocados, it's not actually entirely surprising that that might have been taken off, um, well, particularly they, after their net neutrality joke a couple of weeks ago. They, um, uh, Virgin roped in Richard Branson to endorse this new idea, so it had that kind of slight air of authenticity. And and locally in the same category, Safair, Fly Safair, the the relatively new budget airline that's doing well launched a new luggage-carrying feature whereby, mm-hmm. in order to increase the capacity of luggage that they can take on any one flight, they have a Fenter trailer with wings and, and, <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a fin attached to the back of the plane. So Hilarious. Behind them. So these are all good examples. But <laughs> if I could go back, Rafael, way to yes. the idea of one that's believable being the ones that are best. Yes. Then I have a hero and a zero. The, the, the really clever one comes from New Zealand, where it seems to me an awful lot of creativity originates. <laughs> and, uh, this concerns <laughs> a BMW dealer who did a kind of double bluff. What, what they did was they ran an ad on the front page of the local newspaper, which was even headlined April Fool's Special. And they said in, in the body copy of the ad, bring this ad along with your, with your old car of any vintage and if you're the first one through the door carrying the ad, then we will give you a brand new BMW. But because it was so blatantly pitched as an April Fool, nobody responded until one woman did eventually say, well, I'm going to give it a go. And she went along in her 15-year-old um, skidonk. You're kidding. Uh, clutching the ad, walked in and walked out a few minutes later with a brand new BMW. They gave a, her the car. It was a genuine offer wrapped up as an April Fool. So that was a kind of a That's double brilliant. bluff. I thought very clever indeed. Not only believable, but definitely engenders very warm feelings about the brand. Well, and, exactly. They and, have generated so much uh, publicity, particularly virally, around the world, that even if it did cost them 
you know, a couple of hundred thousand rands to give away the car, the amount of media coverage that they got in exchange vastly outnumbered the actual cost. So a very Indeed. clever and a very, very commercially sensible idea, as it turned out. Smart. And Andy, who is your zero? Well, someone who I normally praise to the heavens, Elon Musk. Oh? Um, and I think he's had oh. enough it's time for him to, <laughs> to have a bit of a, a rundown. And taking as my criterion the believability of an April Fool, he posted um, a, a tweet headlined, Tesla goes bankrupt. And this is from the genuine Elon Musk uh, oh Twitter feed. And he, and he says, despite intense efforts to raise money, including a last-ditch mass sale of Easter eggs, we are sad <laughs> to report that Tesla has gone completely and totally bankrupt. So bankrupt, you can't believe it. Now, this predictably went out in terms of timing to be an April Fool. But by making it sound so ridiculous, it takes a lot of the edge off the whole thing. And for me, from a communications point of view, which is my, my sort of criterion, I would say that, that, that deserves zero status for being a little bit crass and a little bit obvious. Indeed, and a little bit, a bit sad, actually, given he's actually been on the brink of bankruptcy before. I think if he'd, ex- if he'd excluded the Easter egg part, it would have been a little less corny. Um, although, similar to what we were talking about with Trump uh, sending tweets that impact markets, we might have had an SEC situation if it had been too believable, um, well, if, if it had impacted it right. <laughs> He even posted a photograph of himself passed out, leaning up against a Tesla Model 3 with a sign and, you know, cardboard um, handwritten sign saying <laughs> bankrupt. Um, so, you know, the whole thing became a little bit of a, a weak joke, in my opinion. A little bit, a little bit. Uh, although he's not really been known. I mean, he's got great mini talents. Comedy is not one of them, I would say. <laughs> Good point, Rafael. Good point. All right. Well, Andy, thank you so much for some brilliant insights. I hope a couple of advertisers have been listening. And next year, I'm taking my newspaper, and I'm going to go to Tesla, actually. I think Tesla should take BMW's page um, and, and try to get some, 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 uh, some goodwill out of that idea. You'll Thanks so to much for today. Me. <laughs> take care, Andy. Okay, all the best. Branding and advertising expert Andy Rice on uh, our Heroes and Zeros today. The Money Show on your number one news and talk station. This is Rifilo Moloto and I'm standing in for Bruce Whitfield this week. On your next Money Show, we will be looking at the latest business trends in our Business Unusual feature with tech expert Toby Shapshak. Also, make sure you tune in for a great shapeshifter, excuse me, for yes, for a great shapeshifter called Inga Gubeka from Inga Atelier, a new brand specializing in contemporary luxury leather accessories, my favorite. We will find out how this local designer and entrepreneur is taking the world by storm. So ensure you tune in tomorrow. The Money Show. The Africa Business Report. Dr. Martin Davies, Managing Director of Emerging Markets and Africa at Deloitte, is here to speak to us about some business in Africa today. Dr. Davies, it's lovely to speak to you. How are you? Yes, thank you. Phil. Good to be here. Good evening. Indeed. Tell us, how will we be assuming, South Africa will be assuming the, uh, the presidency of the BRICS uh, at, the, at the summit? It's been moved from July potentially to September, I understand. Yeah, initially it was, it was finalised, and as a few days ago, I was talking to some uh, friends in the Chinese uh, Chinese embassy, and they were saying still end of July. It's quite a big deal. The BRICS sort of uh, rotating chairmanship now follows the letters, i.e., it was China last year, and now it's South Africa next year will be Brazil. So as we assume that presidency, we'll try and shape the agenda, if you will, of BRICS, um, the emerging market sort of first tier first-tier group of emerging market countries, if you will, i.e. BRICS. And but more importantly, I think, how does South Africa start to once again have a more assertive foreign commercial policy in our own economic neighborhood, i.e. Africa? And how do we 
collaborate or perhaps even compete better against our BRICS partners or more accurately BRICS companies um, which who are investing, trading and doing business in our part of the world. I think this is something we perhaps have lost sight of in recent times. Indeed, we have a different president, a completely different outlook. We haven't hosted the summit since 2013. Um, we've been a member for now just three years. You know, we were expecting to have the Joburg BRICS or the BRICS Africa uh, offices in Johannesburg opened, Beijing opened theirs timelessly. What are we thinking about uh, about the progress of this? Or is, will that be discussed at the summit still? For me, I think and you sort of allude to it is we need a different what's the word, tone of engagement here. I think the, our previous uh, sort of leadership of um, previous state president, it was very much arguably a statist approach. Now, that is that we're seeing the, the, the economic consequences, the financial consequences of statism in terms of economic policy and foreign commercial policy. Think Brazil, think Russia, think South Africa. Statism and economics, I'm afraid, has been a bit of a blowout in all three cases. China continues as is, but a very different political economy. And I think I'd like to see in terms of how South Africa engages BRICS countries and BRICS companies less sort of having our state and enterprises to the fore, quite the opposite. We need to have sort of the, the big corporate muscle we have on the JSC, i.e. private business, playing with our real A-team vis-a-vis BRICS countries, be it trying a more preferential market access perhaps into these countries uh, and also alignment uh, perhaps, I'm going to use the word again, collaboration of South African corporate interests with BRICS company corporate interests in Africa, which is, after all, after all, our own economic neighborhood. These companies have come in in recent decade, decade and a half or so, cleaned up in many sectors. And I'm afraid uh, are not just, you know, political com- collaborators, yes, but, you know, what about the commercial competitive angle? I think needs to be, I have to have adopt a far more uh, realist perspective, I think, on how we engage BRICS countries and companies going forward. I think that's certainly fair. But then again, as the smallest player, we really did sort of come cap in hand as the gateway to the rest of the continent. My understanding, of course, for BRICS's attractive, uh, our attractiveness to them was um, A, as the gateway, allowing that statism to play out in terms of kind of nudging them or, or, or BRIC countries, corporations into, um, from a state-mandated perspective, actually nudging their, their companies into various markets on the continent. I just wonder what your thoughts are. You know, we just signed the Continental Free uh, Trade Agreement. Uh, so at least South Africa signed the, de- the, the declaration. Um, we're waiting for South Africa to sign after I think about 44 other countries have. Is this... Is there a conflict uh, between between our saying that we're going to collaborate from a business perspective with our continent, but at the same time we're open up these, opening up these opportunities to our BRICS partners? I think South Africa needs to step up once again. We did previously. We had things like the Africa Renaissance. We had NEPAD, New Partnership for Africa Development. We, we sort of, you know, Africa Renaissance. This was sort of our, our going north thrust, if you will. Go north, sort of young man, a young lady. That was sort of our foreign policy from Jimmy and Becky days. I think in terms of structural decline, i.e. no growth economy in South Africa, do we still have that, that default claim of being the, the Africa representative BRICS? Our Nigerian friends would say, well, there should be an N in there at least and call it BRICS with N being Nigeria in the middle. Mm. So I think we're a slow, no growth economy, 1%, 2%. We need to sort of really be far more assertive in our own region to 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 regain that that uh, that status if you will of being the default BRICS partner country or default African economy that is and uh, I think you rightfully say is that you know how do we start to 
to you know align the the Africa Free Trade, the Continental Free Trade Agreement. Yet we've not to sign that. You know, ironically. Nigeria and South Africa are the bookends of the sub-Saharan African region, and neither of us have ratified this agreement. Mm. We should be the major, you know, foremost proponents of this because it's mostly in our interest, to be quite honest, in the interest of South African business. So if we are adopting the sort of uh, free trade or freer liberalized trade moral high ground, if you will, for Africa, uh, that would give us significantly more bargaining sort of influence, uh, I believe, in terms of shaping the agenda of how other countries, BRICS amongst others, engage our, engage our own continent. I think it's a very valid point you're at. I certainly agree with you. Definitely the bookends should have signed it. South Africa and Nigeria should be included. But if the fastest growing economies of the continent are showing us anything that should be shaming us a little bit is that they don't really need us after all. And they're able to have bilateral agreements with each of these countries. I wonder, do you, do you feel that the BRICS relationship is still worthwhile or, or do you hold to your point that it's only worthwhile insofar as we're able to navigate it towards this commercial uh, viability? You know, BRICS started out as nothing more than a, an acronym uh, created Political by Goldman Sachs of, a, of countries with strong, robust growth trajectories, of which we were not, unfortunately, and five all demographics, of which we were not. So it was BRIC, I recall, and then in December 2010, we were invited by Beijing, and it was mm-hmm. a geopolitical coup, if you will, from our side. And um, we became a default African sort of choice, and the apostrophe small s became a capitalist. So we need just to, to kickstart our growth, really, to make claim to this. And, and we need to sort of, you know, we need to be far more assertive, as mentioned, as a foreign policy and foreign commercial policy. Is a brick store relevant? I think we've had a tough three years. The sort of subsiding significance, subsiding the commodity-driven super cycle has impacted growth significantly of South Africa, of Brazil, even Russia on the oil front, oil and gas front. Um, emerging market pickup once again, but... South Africa needs to regain its mojo. I think uh, China, India continue to fire, especially the Chinese. India is doing relatively well uh, in terms of growth terms. Brazil, as mentioned, has been a fiscal blowout in recent times. Uh, Russia's structural decline and South Africa is maybe confused. Uh, we're waiting for, I think, our new administration um, to be to be more engaging on this. And, uh, and South Africa needs to, once again, regain its, its lost position. And we as South Africans, arguably in our favour, have been so introspective on our own issues, domestic issues. We've lost sight of a regional foreign policy play, arguably. And that's something we need to reconsider. And on the ground, I think very resistant as far as xenophobic attacks have had anything to go by. Um, so and would you think there'd be any benefit to sort of other African countries at the round table of uh, the BRICS summit? Or do you think at this point, as you say, let's clear our path, let's be clear about what South Africa wants, let business players from SA be a part of this, not just government, will come and check in on the other African players later? Well, there's, there's increasingly a trend. Not to, do we do we widen the BRICS grouping um, well, in terms of yes. having more observer countries, which took place the last summit in China, do. or do we deepen it and have new fully fledged members and add letters to the acronym and make it more unpronounceable? Perhaps <laughs> <laughs> I think it's more. I think our first approach has been sort of more widening. I.e., you have observer status, perhaps, and we can include countries from Africa, and that that's important. Uh, amongst other countries, uh, other regions as well. So we'll see. I think we'll see a widening before we see a deepening, if that makes sense. Indeed. Um, but I, I do want to see South Africa beyond this sort of obsolete statist approach and think state or enterprise and the like. That always ends in tears, I'm afraid, and, and, and we know how that, and that played out in our own economy. But how do we start to shape the agenda? And, and I, was, I was actually with the Chinese ambassador last week, and uh, I posed a question to him. I said, you know, the megatrend of Africa has been, has been Chinese capital into the continent for the last generation, 15, 20 years. Can you name me one instance 
of a collaborative project, think political, think defense, peacekeeping, think infrastructure development, considering the China are the biggest investors, financial yes. infrastructure. Uh, I don't know, I think telecoms, perhaps, uh, any sector. Some agri, uh, there's been some agri. Uh, agri- agriculture. Can you think of one project where South Africa and China have collaborated for mutual benefit? On in equal our footing. Couldn't name a one. Mm. And this, this is, after all, I would argue, as a, as a patriotic South African, this is our, uh, this is our economic neighborhood. Indeed. We have a major emerging actor coming into it, and we're not engaging that actor on terms that are shaped by ourselves. I find that, uh, you know, as many people often say, it's, uh, we, the strategy, unfortunately, is, and an Indian government friend once said to me in describing his own government, is that we, know we're not, we, never, we never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Uh, and this is something which I think we need to deeply reflect on. Agreed. I wonder if the opportunity, again, is just to look at the CFTA first, right in the backyard of the, that you speak of, before we, we go overseas to breaks where statism isn't necessarily working, as you say. But um, I think you've definitely given us a great deal to ponder. Um, I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Um, uh, really appreciate your perspective. Just one last question I have for you, uh, Martin. Do, uh, President Emerson Nangangwa of Zimbabwe, uh, he has very close relationship uh, with uh, Xi Jinping, even after uh, the departure of, uh, or he's retained those for Zimbabwe, even after the, pro- the departure of uh, President Robert Mugabe. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, uh, the new President Mugabe was in China actually this week. Uh, I believe he's taking a, a, a quite a sizable business delegation with him, 77 companies or individuals, I'm told. Um, China has vigorously engaged, very proactively engaged Zimbabwe in recent years. And, and, and China, through financing infrastructure, especially think power, think road, rail, and Zimbabwe is no exception, is certainly building geopolitical allies through preferential financing in the continent. Uh, of course, you know, Zimbabwe is pretty much defaulted you know, on all debt, including the Chinese. But I think the thing to watch going forward is the privatization agenda in Zimbabwe, and how Chinese sovereign capital starts to think about investing in um, in in these uh, sort of state-owned enterprises, uh, utilities, particularly in Zimbabwe going forward. Uh, I think that, to me, is a general trend that will be discussed in Beijing uh, this week. Interesting. It would seem our neighbour is taking much more of the commercial perspective that you asked for uh, than we are, if, the, if, if privatisation is the way when you've hit the bottom of the barrel, you, you can't go much lower than Zimbabwe. You have to start selling. You have to start selling assets. key assets, particularly sort of moribund, mismanaged state ones. So, um, yeah, I think that's a trend, and I think the capital that's the most willing to invest in the strategy of, of Chinese sovereign wealth to invest in utilities abroad, be it the UK, be it you know Australia, be it many other countries. Uh, Africa certainly no different. The risk factors may be slightly different, but then the political dynamics are certainly different. But the intent of, of Chinese sovereign capital remains uh, remains consistent. Indeed. Well, thanks very much for joining us this evening on the Africa Business Report. Always interesting chatting to Dr. Martin Davies, Managing Director of Emerging Markets and Africa at Deloitte. You're listening to Refuda Molotto, and it is 7.32. The Money Show. The Science of... Joni Petty, a behavioral strategist, facilitator, and author, and co-founder of FAB Quotient, fulfills her life purpose as a human behaviorist, working with individuals and corporate teams as a coach and a straight-talking facilitator. In a world of dynamic complexity, there is a desperate need for self-awareness, agility, and a greater understanding of what makes others tick, and most importantly, interpersonal skills, all of which 
journey embodies and teaches others. Uh, you're here with Rifilo Moloto on the money talk on, excuse me, on <laughs> the money show. <laughs> Excited to talk to Joni Pedal, Chief Behavior Igniter and co-founder of FAB Quotient. What can you tell us about IQ and EQ, Joni? Well, if you're aware, well, IQ and EQ, I like to use an analogy. Why don't we start off with a car? So the engine is definitely the IQ. So that really gives you the vimmer, it gives you the charge, and it gives you the critical thinking ability. But your EQ is your ability to handle the accelerator, the brake, and of course the steering wheel. Because you can have a great engine, but if you cannot handle that car, take the corners and slow down in the rain, it's going to be very difficult to navigate through life. So we need both. Um, What we talk about generally in business and with teams is that uh, we, our IQ is pretty much static through life, but we can dramatically change our EQ, our emotional quotient. So that's like how we like to simplify it. I like, I like the car analogy. I also want to ask, I feel as though most of us uh, have been taught, certainly the people my age and older, um, have been taught to move through your career with talk move with great pace, you know, maybe not as much as we used to elbow people out the way, but you've got to move with great pace through your career. Why uh, Why does EQ, or since when has EQ become something that we should, or our emotional quotient, become something that we should be considering in the workplace? It's, it's really become far more popular to talk about in the last probably five or, or eight years, if you're aware. And in fact, the World Economic Forum has recently put it on their top 10 skills list for 2020. So their Mm. skills in 2015 did not include EQ, emotional intelligence. But for 2020, it's right up there. And in fact, it's number six. So we, it's, it's high. We need it. We absolutely need it. And we're starting to see that people like, uh, or organizations like Google are saying, we don't want those, you know, very intelligent geeks only. We want people who can absolutely work with other people. So Google started a project, it's so interesting, Mm. in 2008 called Project Oxygen. And they said, what kind of people do we need within Google to make Google successful? And they've recently repeated it in 2018. And they are saying that really people who can manage each other. So you spoke about elbowing people out. Mm. They're saying (laughs) actually that we want people. It's no longer the 80s. It's no longer the (laughs) 80s. We want team players. We want people who can work with diversity of personality and saying, hey, we're not all the same. We have different views, different lens on the world. But uh, how can we work in a team environment? And we show concern for the team's success and obviously the team well-being. Now, out of interest, you made a very good point that, you know, IQ tends to be quite static. We take IQ tests when we're children, often in high, in primary school. Um, when you enter a company, you take a, a psychometric test normally, but you could be in that company for 12 years and nobody tests you again. Whereas you say that you can exponentially improve your EQ. What can you change? How can you develop it? So there are fantastic EQ assessments, Rafiway. Hmm? We I belong to an organization based in Dubai. They're in 127 countries, and there are many other organizations, but they are the biggest um, in 127 countries, as I say. And they've got a variety of EQ tests. So from very simple ones that look at your brain talents and your brain profile. So as an example, 
the brain brief profile looks at just three continuums. How do we, in terms of EQ focus, how do we drive ourselves and how do we make decisions? So there are many tests available and it's not so much the testing that we're interested in and teamwork and, and getting ahead in our careers. It's about saying, do we self understand and are we playing to our strengths? So, you know, emotions drive people and people drive organizations and performance. So I think what we're starting to see now is forget about the testing as we go through our careers. As you say, you know, you might mm -hmm. do a psychometric as you arrive. But let's have a look at really understanding the various team members and understanding how we are putting, as Jim Collins said, the right people in the right seats facing the right direction so that we do get those buses moving and you get your teams really going at speed, you know, gunning towards their own uh, particular goals. Well, I, I have a question. So if it's about your focus, your drive, or your, ability, your brain profile's ability to focus, have drive, and make decisions, how much of this is nature and how much of this is actually nurture? How, how can so we train ourselves? So that's the question. Okay. <laughs> that's the good question. <laughs> so here we go, because we said we'll talk about IQ, EQ, and personality. Per, the IQ we spoke about being static, and personality yes. and your temperament pretty much the same. So I'll get this will be a bit of a long-winded answer to your, que okay. your good question. But we look at those two concepts. I like to draw figures when I and play on the flip chart when I deal with people. And I draw a seesaw. And I say, right, on the top of the seesaw, you've got your brain. There's your IQ, pretty much static. And we can talk about neuroplasticity later. Mm -hmm. Your personality, and that's back to your nature-nurture question, is yes. we are born a temperament. And even if you're one of a twin or a triplet, you'll have a look at your siblings and you'll see that they operate life quite differently too. So they might make decisions differently. They may problem solve differently. They may right. analyze things. And that's besides the hobbies, et cetera, et cetera. So those two things are on the top of the seesaw. The fulcrum of the seesaw is your EQ. And that is really, if we have to simplify it, I like to look at things in really simple, memorable ways. EQ has got two parts to it and it's, the first part is how do you know yourself and play to your strengths and you can change that and develop in many ways. And then how do you know others and interrelate and integrate with others? So the nature nurture, let's loop it back to your question now, is from a nature perspective, let's just simplify things and say IQ static, personality static. From a nurture perspective, we can nurture our EQ. And certainly the nurturing should be happening at school level. We have tremendous issues at school with bullying and those kinds of problems. Yes. And we should really be speaking to our students about how can they understand each other, how can they play to their strengths, how can they start to self-accept. I mean, and that would go a long, long way with really grooming the younger generation to, uh, to understand the depth of emotional intelligence. Um, I heard Ruby Wax saying the other day, for as long as we're not on Christiane Mampur, for as long as we're not talking about, uh, for as long as we're not uh, connecting our neuro responses to our mindfulness, uh, she sort of said that our generation is done and that we've got to focus on the kids. Is that is that what you're saying? That we, Or is it too late for people our age, halfway through our careers? <laughs> Speak for <laughs> and, yourself, Rafael. Okay, okay. I, I just want to know there's a chance. Because there's the, a chance, the, yes. The next question I want to ask is, you know, this is obviously very soft and I think um, it, it seems very soft. I know we're speaking about neuroplasticity and the like, but um, we've historically called these soft skills, even though they've become more centralized over the years um, of, of corporate corporate engagement. Um, and they're clearly very important for the employee to focus on, um, to be a better team player, to be better observed. 
I'm guessing managers and CEOs are also the ones who would want to, you know, find a, a, a measure of a degree of measuring profitability by being able to coordinate teams via their EQ. Absolutely. Uh, is that something that you're able to to provide? Yes, we are. So we we have got worldwide stats. There's a, a big research study called uh, Project Vitality, and mm. that is showing that organisations who prioritise emotional intelligence are 22 times more likely to be high performing. So there are some sure. rigorous stats, Rafael, where it's not so much, it used to, and I think you're absolutely correct, it used to be very soft, very much on the sidelines, and now it's definitely percolating to the top. And if we're starting to see Google prioritizing it, if we're starting to see the World Economic Forum prioritizing it, other organizations are going to sit up and wake up and really take uh, into account that we need to look at quality leadership, and quality leadership has to incorporate emotional intelligence. So what's, if we look at another a huge study on self-mastery and, and performance, so building on your question, yes. is that we are looking for leaders in management positions who, number one, inspire and motivate others. That's part of your EQ. You know, we, we look at what's happening in terms of ethics and governance just in our country, in South Africa. The second big uh, skill we're needing in management is a leader who displays high integrity and honesty. And my goodness, don't we need that in this country? We certainly do. Yep. And so I suppose I, I'd have to throw the question out. Do you own a company out there, um, you're a manager or a CEO, do you think that your staff have enough EQ? Are they finding uh, that things are getting more friendly and fuzzy to work with in your company? Um, or is it still based on IQ, how smart you are? Give us a call. Come join us in this conversation with Joni um, and let us know. Uh, we're on uh, 011-883-0702 or 021-446-0567. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. The Money Show. The science of... Welcome back to The Money Show. You're with Rifilo Moloto for the final hour of the show. I'll be with you all week, but today speaking to Joni Petty, Chief Behaviour Igniter and co-founder at FAB Quotient, um, really speaking about the, the, the how the human behaviour shifts are allowing us to bring the best of ourselves, not only as employees, but also as employers and CEOs. Um, we'd obviously be very curious. Um, uh, well, we want, to, we want to speak a little bit more specifically about the science of EQ versus IQ. Um, Joni, can you give us a little bit more of a perspective on the science and to the extent that it has been rolled out for people looking for employment, not just those already in corporations? So people looking for employment, um, the whole EQ is, is really let's look at the two perspectives here, Rufiwe. So when I speak about it at a business school, I get people to stand up and I say, right, you know, if you're looking for employment, you've got to look at two perspectives. And I get them to really have some fun, raise their right leg and say, <laughs> there are two legs to this. We're walking this journey called life and it's got hills and dales and dongas and boulders and we've got to walk around it. So the right leg is going to be about three perspectives. What, how well do you know, know yourself? So your self-awareness, what are your key characteristics that really drive you forward? What do you love doing? You know, are you more of a thinker? Do you want to sit in a, a dark room and conceptualize a business model? Or do you want to get out there and sell? So if you're looking for a job, know your particular strengths in your personality. Mm-hmm. So that's the first perspective when they're lifting up their right leg. The second is, is can you self-manage? 
So can you step forward and say what you mean and mean what you say? And then can you step back and can you keep quiet? So those of us who are assertive need to sometimes zip it. And the quieter, more thinking, more withdrawn personalities need to step forward and, and say what they mean. And then the third part of that right leg is the self-motivation. So if you're looking for a job, what gives you vomit in your tummy? What really gives you that great feeling where you wake up and you say, yes, that is what I want to do. So that perspective is what we call know yourself. The other leg is know others. And it's just so simple. So it's so memorable when you think about EQ. Know yourself, self-awareness, self-regulation and self-motivation. And then your other leg is know others. And that is all about empathy. So empathy is vastly different to sympathy. Empathy is understanding that we have different personalities, understanding that we have different drivers, understanding that we, we have a different modus operandi in a business that we might may be going into. And then the last part of knowing others is your social skill, your ability right. to inform, to persuade, to negotiate, to influence, to really get your message across. So looping back to your question is that if you're going out looking for a job, you really, if you're the more self-aware you are, if you're aware, the more you know, this is really what I want to do. This is what will give me juice in my tummy when I wake up in the morning. And that's important. Um, and that comes across in an interview. So many of our organizations in this country, I'm loving seeing that they are not just purely hiring on uh, a great CV with great education. They're saying, let me interview these people mm-hmm. and let various people in our organization interview them because people want to work with people that they really like and they resonate with. Indeed. And also uh, who can bring out their own strengths uh, or bring out their own strengths so from their weaknesses. Yes. Um, I, I would say that what, so in terms of if I'm sitting here listening at home and I'm listening to you saying, okay, the right leg and the left leg, the right leg sounds familiar to me in terms of how I can put my best foot forward, if you can excuse the slight yes. pun. Um, but, you know, knowing my strengths and my personality, being able to self-manage and have be self-motivated, I might have put... I want to be a, I'm a self-starter. Um, you know, I understand, you know, I'm disciplined. Was what my, may, we might have put as quote-unquote characteristics, uh, you know, in the past on a CV. The, the left leg is a little less familiar on how, to, how do I actually express that to an, a potential employer? I, do, do, do I say I'm empathetic? Do I say, you know, I, usually we say I'm a great team player. Yes, um, yes. You know, and then usually it's left up to the, the interviewing company to say that person's a good fit. Um, you know, we've got the brute, we've got the, the, the loving person, or we've got the more thoughtful person. You know, sometimes you need a cacophony of all, all types. Absolutely. So how else do we express that we've got great empathy or that, you know, we have strong EQ um, without saying I have strong EQ? <laughs> So empathy is a, it is a word that sounds warm and fluffy and, and not quite kind of organizational fit. So the way I encourage people to express it with your way is to actually use different characteristics and I particularly use the Enneagram as a personality system. So I would say things like um, I do understand that some members of a team or a leader may be quite challenging and dogmatic and megalomaniac in terms of how they make decisions and you know really go forward at quite a pace. I'm the kind of person who understands that can work with that and to your point the collaboration I can make one plus one equal three with that kind of person. So I'm not sensitive. I'm quite bulletproof, but I'm the quieter version of that person who likes to get the detail done. And I like to see things through from A to Z. So give examples of empathy, how your personality will fit with someone who's very, very different to the way you are. 
and really demonstrate in that way. So empathy, I, 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 you know, the word is just, it's misused very often. It's confused Indeed. with sympathy. So I think you, you ask a good question there. I would give really good examples of how you either stand out and you're really assertive or you're more withdrawn and you're more collaborative. What is it about you that makes you work with a diverse range of different types of people? Indeed. And to, for putting a team together, uh, particularly as a CEO or, a, or an MD trying to try to build a team, what would your Enneagram say about, you know, diversity? I think we all know it's the right thing to do. Um, but I'm curious, does it, does it say anything about, you know, the p- p- potential improvement of EQ in a team by having more women, different ages, cultural differences represented? Because then it might actually help us understand how diversity is not just a Uh, you know, the right thing to do is the smart thing to do. Yes, it is the smart thing to do. So the Enneagram gives you nine personality styles. And uh, each of those personality styles has got two lines that come out of their particular number. And one shows really very quite quickly if you're in a stressed state and one shows if you're in a personal growth and transformation state. Uh-huh. So the Enneagram cuts across gender, age, culture, et cetera, et cetera. And if you're putting together a team, if you were, as you said, is you really want the diverse, you want as many of those numbers in your team as possible. Because you want right. those deep thinkers who love to research you or stay up, you know, not all night because I'm the the professor of sleep and I like people to sleep but they uh, yeah, I won't tell you my yes, sleep patterns then. please don't because yeah. I will start to throw my toys far and wide because that's okay. the uh, as I said to Bruce two weeks ago that's certainly the uh, the uh, Swiss army knife of health is we need to sleep but Indeed. yes the Enneagram um, and people can go on this website if they like it's not our website it's the website that I use in New York it's yes. uh, www.enia comes from a Greek word enia means nine e-n-n-e-a Gram, G-R-A-M, institute.com. And for $12, they can do a Enneagram online test and mm-hmm. start to have a look at playing to their strengths. And then, as you say, if you are a leader of a team, I often am asked in a, if I'm putting teams together or there's a new team member joining to say, hey, Joni, let's look at the Enneagram styles within the current team. We've got one or two people joining. Are they the right Enneagram style so that our mm. EQ within our team will be good? And the Enneagram is three-dimensional, Rafiwe. So yes. you can, it's, if, let me use a cake as an example. The icing of the cake is the Enneagram symbol, which is a circle, a triad, and a triangle. And then there are nine layers to the cake. So you can quite quickly, if you're very astute with the Enneagram, help people self-identify their psychological level of health, which certainly would align to their emotional intelligence. Indeed. And then also you spoke about it it being in a personality style that might be, or at least a a time period where you might be stressed or at a personal growth phase. So that actually also seems to speak to the fact that the Enneagram could read you at different phases and you could potentially move around an organization so you don't really get fatigue in a particular particular role or burnout. Yes. Well, that burnout issue is what I'm seeing in a dramatic way. So vastly Mm. different. I mean, I've been in this field for 22 years, vastly different to even three years ago. So I'm seeing people now, Rafiwe, who don't say to me, Joni, on a Friday, I'm absolutely finished and I'm just going to take Monday off as well to have a four-day weekend. They are burning out to the point of being hospitalized and then I'm not seeing them for a month or two months or three months. So this burnout and fatigue issue is extreme. 
We've got a lot of grit in this country and it's fantastic. But people are working jolly hard in these organizations and they are not self-managing. And of course, self-management is the second pillar of EQ on that of right the, leg. On the right leg. Yes. Indeed. And there's also the, the, there's the fatigue that you speak of, which is absolutely prevalent and, and a huge stress factor. But also just, you know, maybe getting tired of a particular, uh, a particular job path. Yes. Um, but... So that is, moving around is fantastic, as you spoke about. Yes, and, for longevity. And longevity, finding different seats. And I think that's so valuable for the organization because fresh eyes on a new project, um, just new energies, mixing it up a little bit because we're working in a lot of matrix organizations and this fluidity and people being able to move around. And in fact, let me go back to the world uh, economic forum. They're saying critical thinking and cognitive agility are skills that we definitely need by 2020. And that sings to the song that you've just spoken about. Let's move people around the organization as well. Indeed. Absolutely insightful. Johnny Petty, thank you so much. Chief, Chief Behavior Igniter and co-founder at FAB Quotient learned so so much about the science of IQ and EQ. Thank you so much for joining us on the show tonight. Thank you, Rafiwe. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Welcome back. It's time for us to go to Sfiso Zulu with the 8 p.m. news. It's been fantastic. Been on my first money show today with you. Check, check you out tomorrow at 6 p.m. My name is Rifilo Moloto, and that is a wrap.